Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This Sunday, Palm Sunday, and next Sunday we'll focus on the death and resurrection of our Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we'll just look at this verse this morning. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Lord, we ask for your blessing upon the preaching of your word. We ask for your blessing upon the reception of your word that we would all, including the preacher, hear the word, understand the word, embrace the word, and do the word. We ask for this for Christ's sake. Amen. I have said previously, maybe in several introductions, that we live in crazy times. Uh, the past couple of years, of course, has in, in many ways been, been crazy. The time that we live in now, even if we reflect back on the 80s during the Cold War, Perhaps, at least it's been said, that we're closer to World War III, to nuclear war, than we ever have before. Not just with Russia, but also with China. If you thought things were crazy when there was a possibility that we could be nuked by Russia, now we could also be nuked by China. That's crazy. And not only that, there's other things that are also crazy. There is a, a man that works in the government. I think he's the Minister of Health, and he believes that he's a woman, and he's the Minister of Health. That's kind of crazy. Did you know that also, what's also crazy, I don't know if this bill has passed yet or not, but there's a bill in Washington that you can't have hate speech, so if you talk bad about LGQBT, then you could get in bad trouble. I don't know if that bill has passed yet or not, but isn't that crazy? We live in crazy times. Now, of course, the apostles also live during crazy times. I don't know if it was that much different. Certainly, it was different in terms of technology, but the heart of man has always been sinful. However, by crazy, there are nuances of the word crazy that doesn't have to mean bad. Things can be crazy good. And there are some things, I think, that are so uh, amazing and wild and fantastical that it seems not to be true. And I, I may have shared this before in the past as well, but I, I recall hearing of a, a former executive from Boeing at Hillsdale College gave a lecture. I, I watched the lecture. And he said that right now we, ha we have the technology where your cell phone could be continuously being charged from satellites. He said we have that technology now. It's not just being used. He also said that we have the technology now, this is an executive at Boeing, to be anywhere in the world in one hour. 
it's just we, we have that technology, it's just not available for you know everyday use. Now, something that I heard that was also fantastical is not not just an acquaintance of mine, but a a friend of mine was accepted to be a candidate to be an astronaut to the moon. Some of you know him. He, he doesn't go to the church, but he hasn't been here before. And he was accepted to be an astronaut and will most likely be going to Houston to begin training to go to the moon. I think it's called Artemis. So I asked him, are you accepting chaplains to go to the moon? Can I sign up to be a chaplain and I'll go on the mission? I would love to go on a mission to the moon. What what man doesn't want to go and be an astronaut? So his response was, I told Lisa, Lisa, I took you to India, take you to the Northwest now. I'm going to the moon. So he said, yes, they're taking applications for chaplains. Except, he said, they don't allow the preachers to speak with gravity. Do you understand? So this man, some of you, again, know him. And he is king of the puns. He was joking with me. He is going to be, uh, if he continues to pass the tests, then he will be an astronaut. He's designed programs. Some of the rovers on Mars, he designed the computer software for them. So truly, I think that to me is crazy. A friend of mine is going to be, potentially, if he keeps passing, an astronaut. That is that's amazing. That's, that's crazy. Well, how does this fit together with this sermon? If you have your notes, the title is Good Friday on Sunday is Crazy. Good Friday on Sunday is Crazy. That is, today, we're not just celebrating the triumphal entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, but also we're celebrating Good Friday on Sunday. Why is Good Friday as we celebrated on Sunday, why is it good? Jesus was betrayed, arrested, and died on a cross. And I think we can say that not only it was good, but it was crazy good. And so by the word crazy, at times, we can have the idea of amazing or wild beyond belief. So the world in which we live in, according to Scripture, the book of Revelation, before it gets better... It's probably, according to the word, it's going to get worse. So how can we as believers live in in a crazy world and, and really thrive? Well, it's because the cross is actually crazier than the world and what happens in the world. We live in crazy times, but that the cross is actually, in a true sense, even more crazy is something that we need to understand and apply. Right? Even in 1 Corinthians, there is a sense in which, at least from the perspective of the world, that the cross is what? Foolish. It's crazy. But even the foolishness and the weakness of God is much more wild and amazing and much more crazy in a sense in its strength and its wisdom and its power than all that the world has to offer. And I think in a true sense, that's what the Spirit of God is saying in 
this text that we have before us this morning. Specifically, that there is an exchange that happens at the cross, a transaction that happens at the cross that is absolutely out of this world, crazy and wild, amazing, and better than having a friend or yourself walking on the moon is a transaction that happens in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. And so there are some things to understand, and there are also some things to apply. First, some things to understand. We could sum it up by saying what the Lord did in this exchange in verse 21. It is crazy. It's wild. It's amazing. It's staggering. And so there are several things to understand. First, that Jesus was sinless in this exchange, and you can see it there in the text, he knew no sin. And that there are several things we can see right away in this text, and if I may, a a way to word for word translate it would be this way. The one who knew no sin on our behalf was made sin. That's actually word for word, but in English it may not come across that well. That is, here in the text when it says, who knew no sin, in the Greek text that comes first. It comes before the main verb. The the main verb here in this first part of the the clause was, it's made, he made. God, and the idea is God made. Verse 20, the subject is God, it's God. God made him. Christ, God made the one that knew no sin. But the one who knew no sin is being focused on. That's, you could, perhaps the English text could underline it or put it in italics because that's what the Greek text is focusing on. When the Greek text wants to focus on something, it will put what's normally after the verb before the verb. And that's what's coming here. That's what happens here in this text. It's focusing on the fact that Jesus was sinless. But keep looking at at this and notice it, it doesn't just simply say he was out without sin. We have that in Hebrews 4.15. First Peter 2.22, I think, says he committed no sin and there was no deceit in his mouth. But here, it's something unique and different. Look at the text. It says the one who knew no sin. He had no personal experience with sin. Knew in very similar to how Adam knew Eve in a, in, a, in a personal, intimate way. Jesus Christ had no personal interaction with sin that he committed. Certainly he was tempted, as scripture says, but he never entertained sin in his mind and never for a moment had any type of experience with sin ever at all. So think about it this way. How many days did Jesus go without sinning? Well, how many days can you go without sinning? I want you to try today, from now until tonight, not to sin. Okay? Try and do it. Have you ever? I have. I've woken up and said, today, Lisa, I'm not going to sin. Of course, you know, by an hour later, Tom, um, I have to talk to you, honey, about, about something. 
So I thought, how many days did Jesus go without sinning? So you can take out your little calculator, you know, 365 days times, say, about 33. What is that? I'm not a mathematician, though I do teach math to my kids. I apologize, children. It's about 12,045 days without sin. Right? 365 times 33. So Jesus went without sin about 12,045 days. That means, if you look at the word and a broad spectrum, he loved God the Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved his neighbor as himself perfectly for over 12,000 days. Can you go half a day without sin? I'm, so what I'm saying is that, that that's crazy, that's wild, that's amazing. That means that Jesus kept the Ten Commandments perfectly for over 12,000 days. And the reason why I'm making a point of this is because the, the biblical text is making a point that he knew no sin. He was the perfect, innocent Lamb of God. In fact, Romans chapter 5, verse 19, makes a point of this. Romans 5, verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Jesus Christ was sinless, but he was 100% perfect in his life, in his obedience, the sinless lamb of God. And he did this, remember Hebrews chapter 2, it says he was trusting the Father. He did this not trusting his own deity, but trusting God the Father, the Spirit, and the Word of God. That's why in Revelation, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb of God. He proved how worthy he was by his obedience. And this verse is making a point that he was the sinless one that had no intimate personal acquaintance, even for a millisecond, with sin, with temptation, yes, but not with sin. And that's crazy. Secondly, talking about this exchange, uh, additionally, this exchange was a sacrifice for our benefit. It was a sacrifice for our benefit. Please look back at verse 21. The one who knew no sin on our behalf, he made him sin. It was on our behalf. Our behalf. And that that phrase, on our behalf, it expresses both the idea of for these people and in the place of these people, doing good for these people by standing in the place of them. It's substitutional language. And when we look here in this verse, he, he substitutes, and though he was sinless, he was made sin on our behalf. And even our behalf is coming before the verb, before even the subject, which is in itself not normally how it's done, and so it's being focused on the one who know no sin was our sacrifice, 
the one that didn't deserve to be sacrificed or make a sacrificial offering. He himself was the sacrifice. And that is crazy. In a sense, it's not, it's nonsensical, right? That's even what Romans 5 says. Who would die for a righteous man? Perhaps somebody maybe would die for a good man, but God demonstrates his own love for us. Why, yet we were sinners, Christ died for us. And there it's talking about that. That's just, in one sense, human reasoning, that's not logical that somebody would do that. Talking in terms of human wisdom. But God's wisdom is both greater and wiser and stronger than human wisdom. He stepped in our place on our behalf. He was willing to suffer for all those who trusted him. But even further, it wasn't, keep looking at verse 21, the one who knew no sin on our behalf was made sin on our behalf. It wasn't that he made this sacrifice. It wasn't that he stood in our place because he had to out of a lack in himself. It wasn't that God the Father sent God the Son because if God the Son didn't make this sacrifice and stand in our stead for all those that trusted him, if he wasn't our substitute on the cross, if he didn't do that, then somehow God the Father would be hurt. It wasn't that the triune God, in other words, needed to save me in order to to be happy. God didn't need to save me. God doesn't need to save you. Jesus didn't need to be your substitute for self-improvement. He was already perfectly happy in himself. Why then did he do this? There had to be a substitute. There had to be someone that would die on our behalf that was sinless because of our great crime that we had committed against God. Psalm 34, 7 says that God will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. The book of Nahum, chapter 1, quotes that and says the very same thing. In the New Testament, it says the wages of sin, Romans six twenty three is what? The wages of sin is? Death. The soul who sins, the life that sins, will die. That is, when I commit a crime, if I lie to anyone, it's not just that that's a white lie. That is a an infinite crime against God because God is infinitely holy and, and righteous and pure. There, there's no end to how holy God is and his greatness. And so when we sin, it is a crazy sin against the crazy holiness of God. And if God were not to punish that sin and send me to an infinite hell because my sin is an infinite sin against his infinite holiness, then he wouldn't be God. He'd be some sub-deity. And we would all be lost. And so God, not out of lack for himself, but to benefit us, sent his son to be this Jesus Christ, to be the substitute, the sacrifice on the cross, to make that payment for my debt, for your debt, for all that trusts him. This is substitutionary work. It, it is amazing. And so there is this great exchange that takes place. Perhaps we can think of it 
this way, the fulcrum of this exchange, the exchange that Christ gets our sin, we get his righteousness. The, the, the fulcrum of this exchange is substitution, which means death of the sinless Messiah. That's the, the, the fulcrum that, that makes this work, that, that provides the foundation for this great exchange where I get the righteousness of God and Jesus gets my sin. Perhaps it's similar to if there were, it's, it's not really similar. It's really a type of, it's really a, a pathetic illustration, but perhaps it, it gets somewhat to the point of it. If there is a billionaire, let's say he, let's say he had $999 billion and he came to you and, and, and your bank account, maybe you have like a dollar, you know, maybe. Have you ever had less than a dollar? Don't raise your hand. In your bank account? Let's say, let's say you're doing well and so you have one dollar in your bank account. Okay? And this person that has 999 billion dollars says to you, you know what, I would like to give you 999 billion dollars and I'll take your one dollar. You would be like, what? That's, that's crazy. Are, are, are you insane? Why would you do that? Well, for God, not only he, it wasn't just that he gave, gives you $999 billion. He gives you infinitely more than that. And in a process also dies. In order for you to get more than $999 billion, God became a human without diminishing his own deity, and died on the cross. He made the sacrifice in order that you can inherit much more than $999 billion. And that's a pathetic illustration. Because no man can take 999, woman can take $999 billion with them. Once you die, it's gone. And then there's forever. And God... And Christ will give you untold, unbelievable, glorious riches of joy and peace and love with him forever. But it's all based upon this sacrifice on our behalf. Further, a third thing to understand, and this exchange, and the, the, the language sounds odd, is that Jesus was made sin. That, that's what the text says. The one who knew no sin on our behalf, sin was made. Would be, if you want to do it word for word, but it, it doesn't sound right in our English. But again, this is being emphasized. It's being put up front because it's, it's staggering. It would make those that were hearing or those that are reading it, even hearing that he was made sin, so it causes us to be like, what? But in the Greek text, it, it's even more um, shocking because it comes before the verb. And it's like You scratch your head or shake your head. What? He, he was made sin? What does that mean, that, that he was made sin? Well, certainly it's not the idea that he was made a sinner. He knew no sin. He, he didn't commit any sin. It's not that he was made a, a sinful person but rather that our sin was laid upon him by 
imputation. And we see this in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourgings we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And I believe this is getting at this idea of that Christ was made sin. Made sin in, 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 in an abstract sense of Christ himself, our iniquity, our sin, our perversion, that's what the word iniquity means, our transgressions were laid onto him, onto his account. In such a a real way, it could be said that he was made sin. He was a sin offering. But he was a sin offering in such a way that the Father looked at him as God the Father looked at God the Son during his crucifixion as sin. And so cast judgment upon him that we deserved. It's very similar to Galatians chapter 3 verse 10. Cursed is everyone who doesn't obey everything that is written in the law of God. And then verse 13 says, he became a curse for us. Christ became a curse for us because he received the curse, the judgment from God that I as a sinner, that you as a sinner deserved for all those that trust him. In the same way, Christ also became sin in the sense that he became a sin offering. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He became a sin offering that the judgment and the wrath of God was poured out upon. Ephesians 2.3 says, we were all children of wrath. And then as that substitute on the cross, Jesus Christ, so much in a crazy, real, true sense was a sin offering, it could be said he was made sin. Realize, uh, parallel to, to this, is that we were made what? We become the righteousness of God. Well, that doesn't mean that organically in my body that I am God's righteousness. It's a way to talk about justification. Verse 21, when it says he became sin, it's a way to talk about imputation, that my sin is laid to his account. Just as the illustration where this rich man... He gives me all of his billions and billions of dollars and I give him one dollar. He becomes poor. Not the best illustration, but by imputation, Jesus becomes sin in that sense. If God took a record of my sin on a sheet of paper, on a regular 9 by 11 sheet of paper, let's say my sin, and he wrote down every sin I committed. How many sheets of paper would he have, do you think? That's a rhetorical question. I'm not asking you to actually verbalize how many sheets of paper 
You know, it would, of course, be thousands, right? It could probably go around the world for many, many miles. And so this verse here is saying that Christ, if God took a record of Christ's sins, how many sheets of paper would that require? Ten? Five? Three? One sheet? How about half a sheet? He wouldn't use any paper because Christ, his life was sinless. It was blank. But this verse is saying, what happens is that my record of sin goes on to his account. My bad record becomes his bad record. He's not the sinner. He's the innocent lamb of God. But my bad record is what he willingly, voluntarily, he takes all those sheets of paper and carries them to the cross. And if you trusted him, yours too. That's the weight, the burden and that he carries of sin. That's why Isaiah 53 talks about that he was crushed by our sin. It fell upon him. In that sense, Christ became sin. But there's good news. Because <laughs> this verse in verse 21 doesn't stop there. It has this, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Finally, this exchange, it gave us really the craziest gift ever. And that is that we would become the righteousness of God. And this verse is so impactful and written in such a way that there's so much truth here that it's hard to bring it all forth. But you could even here translate it so that we, we might become the righteousness of God. I think it's in, is it in Shakespeare, Henry the seventh or eighth, where we, we marry men, you know, and it makes it, in fact, we are, no, we, we few men, something like that. That's the way this is written. We, we became the righteousness of God. It's written like that. So where Paul, he uses two we's. One is part of the verb, and then just a normal pronoun. We, we became the righteousness of God. And there is this biblical type of craziness that is here. It's astounding. It's hard to fathom that we would become the righteousness of God. Thinking back to Luke 18 with the Pharisee and the tax collector. Who would go home righteous before God? I've not committed adultery. I haven't lied. I've done all these things. I've tithed. I've given my money away. And then you have a traitor to the nation. And he says, God, atone for my sin. Who went home justified? The tax collector. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. 
but everyone that exalts themselves will be humbled. The tax collector went home justified right with God because of his perspective, his attitude, and he got this righteousness of God. Now, when you look at this verse, you have these words, Jesus was made sin, we become the righteousness of God. There are are different words in Greek when it says might become, it's the same word that's used in verse 17 where it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. It is this idea of this, at, at salvation, there is a type of birth that happens. Something new is created. And so this here in verse 21 is talking about it's at salvation. When we are generated, we become the righteousness of God. And again, it's not this organic thing that happens inside of my uh, my body, but rather it's, notice it says, in Him, that in Christ I get God's righteousness through Christ to me. Christ gets my sin record, and I get His record of perfect obedience. That's what this verse is saying. And that's why I've said it's a crazy exchange that God says to all those who trust him, I'll take your dirty, disobedient record that sends you to hell. I'll take it myself and I'll give you the perfect record that God the Son has. That's justification. That he declares you righteous because on your account, with your papers that had all of your bad deeds on it, that goes to Christ. He dies on the cross for you, pays the debt that you and I deserved, but all of his obedience. Let's say that God wrote down, God the Father wrote down every way that Jesus was obedient for 12,045 days. How many sheets of paper would that be? (laughs) That would be crazy long. Where all of that obedience is placed into your account. It goes on your record book. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see all the bad things that you've ever done or will do. He sees all the good things that Jesus has already done. That is the idea of you become the righteousness of God. Though we don't use them, I guess we do somewhat, Though we don't use chalkboards or even uh, white eraser boards that much, this verse is not just talking about that, let's say, God, he wrote down all of your bad deeds, all of your sins on a chalkboard or a white eraser board. And then when you get saved, he forgives you, and so that's cleansed, so it's erased, or it's covered, right? He covers it up. That's biblical, that's true, but this is saying even more than that, he wipes away all your sin, cleans it all off, and then what does he do? He writes on your chalkboard all the perfect obedience of Jesus. That is justification. 
That's what this verse is saying. That's why the gospel is crazy. That God gives you, he writes down for you on, on your record, the perfect obedience of Christ is yours. I, I, I declare you justified that all that Christ did, that's yours. That's how I look at you. That's how I relate to you is in him, through him. His obedience is your obedience. That's what this verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, is saying. That's why we can say there's no condemnation in Christ. That's why we've said, for a Christian, when you go to heaven, it's not just that you get there by the skin of your teeth. As a Christian, you go to heaven in blazing glory. Why? Not because you were such a a great Christian, but because Jesus was great in his obedience. This is the shield, uh, not the shield, the breastplate of righteousness. So that's why, in one sense, this is just a crazy exchange. And as my neighbor says, who gives me haircuts, every time he gives me a haircut, I'll say, how much? And he'll say, three dollars. And I'll say, how much? Three dollars. F-R-E-E. It's free. Three dollars. Every time. How much, Jose, should I pay you? And it'll be like 10.30 at night. It's free. Three dollars. This is free. It costs Christ everything. But for us, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because this is the work that God the Father did through the work of Jesus. Now, more briefly then, how to apply this? How do we use this? This this crazy exchange should have a crazy impact on us to some degree. And I think that's certainly why it's here. In the Bible, it's not just to stir our emotions, but to transform us. So I can think of three ways. Number one, reconcile with God. Verse 20 says here, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you're here today and you're not saved, you need to come to peace terms according to God. You, you need to make peace with God according to His way and to His terms. This word reconcile in verse 20 is the idea of a friendship being established or reestablished resulting in, in peace. And in fact, in the, in the secular field during Bible times, this word reconciled was used in a business Usage, and it can be even today, you know, we're going to reconcile accounts. It was used for a monetary exchange. Here, it's the idea is that there needs to be debt that is squared away with God. And we can use, perhaps, we can use the word uh, account. You need to square your accounts away with God. Now, none of us know when we will die and go to be with the Lord. 
And so today is the day, even that's what it says. And 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Behold, now is the day of salvation. We don't have what it takes to pay the debt that we owe to God. And so Christ pays that for all who trust him. And so today, if you don't know Jesus, make peace with God by waving a white flag of, Lord, I surrender to you. You are God. You are Lord. Scripture says, if you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so we sing this song, I surrender all. We surrender everything that we have. We All that we are, we say, Lord, I trust you and I turn from my sin. I repent and trust that you will save me, Lord. Be reconciled with God. Today is that day. Secondly, look in, still at verse 20. It says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as through God we're making an appeal through us. The second impact is that you can write down the word gospelize. We need to gospelize. That is, we need to evangelize. We are ambassadors. Truly, this world and this culture is not our home. We are strangers and pilgrims here. And now, because as Christians that we are in Christ, we are evangel envoys, envoys from God representing Christ. We have a king, and a king has sent us out. We, we don't have this apostolic authority like the apostles did, but we have the apostolic word that we share from our king of kings, the Lord Jesus. Now, you might say, I want to evangelize, but I'm, I'm an introvert. I'm not an extrovert. Some people are really extroverted. And they're naturally inclined to evangelize. I am a huge introvert, I think. I don't really like being up front that much. But God can call us to do different things that may not exactly square with our personalities. And I think God is doing that a lot in his word, like with Moses. However... Scripture calls believers to witness, to evangelize, to gospelize. And here, and this word here, but also in other parts of the New Testament, and I think even the Old Testament, we are, by creation, but also by new creation, ambassadors, representatives of God about the message of this great exchange. And Matthew 28, 19 through 20, right? Go make disciples of all the nations. And Philippians 2.17, holding forth the word of light, every Christian is called to be an ambassador of Christ, sharing the gospel. Even if you're more of an introvert, you don't have to necessarily be an evangelist. Be you as you pursue Christ, and as you do that, gospelize. Tell people the gospel. How? Well, number one, just a few ideas uh, quickly. And I'm coming off of verse 21, and I'm involving verse 20, which says we are ambassadors. This is how 
we respond. If somebody did give me $999 billion, you would probably know about it. You would probably find out very quickly. Wow. <laughs> right? I'd probably be going like, yay, $999 billion. <laughs> Lisa, we're going on a, cru- a cruise. I'm going to buy the cruise ship. Right? That's Well, the reality is I have something far greater, and if you're in Christ, so do you, than $999 billion. That's nothing. It is literally nothing compared to all that we have in Christ. And so that that's a message that we share. How do we do that? Number one, put truth over technique. Sometimes I think there can be a temptation. I don't have the right techniques. You know, I have learned over the past four decades so many de- different techniques to share the gospel. And now, and probably almost every time I've met somebody, all those techniques, boom. <laughs> i got to go out of my mind. <laughs> I know like five different, six, ten different outlines. Which outline do I choose? Do I, do I use? Oh, yeah. Don't worry about a technique. Just know the truth. Learn different gospel tracks. You can learn different systems to share the gospel. But mainly, you should learn the the truth, the Bible. And then allow the Spirit of God at that moment to work through you, working through the Word. Learn truth, the gospel truth, and then allow the Spirit of God through you to apply that to that specific person because every person and their situation is always different. So if you just know one system and you just have this one maybe track that that's the only thing you share, certainly God can use that. But I would suggest it'd be better to allow the Spirit of God to work through you, working through the Word, and adapt, right? Know the truth, know the biblical principles, and then adapt to that specific person in that specific situation. Number two, talk about gospelizing as as you go. We've said this before, but Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, before it says make disciples, that's modified by as you are going. As you are going about the world, that's how you make disciples. It's about seizing opportunities. It might be watering, it might be planting, it might be harvesting, but you just seize opportunities. Yes, you know, doing the 4th of July parade is great, doing all these other things is great, but just seize opportunities where you're at. For example, I'll try to do this quickly. Was it two days ago? This is like a bad example. This has happened before, and I've shared this with you before. I'm, I'm in the backyard. I'm reading. I, I'm studying. It was kind of sunny. It was that Thursday. I'm in the backyard. I'm reading. I'm studying. Blah, 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 blah. The, the dog's out there with me, and all of a sudden, I start getting wet, and I look up. It's blue skies. My neighbor is spraying me again. It's the second time. The first time I had my computer with me. I'm getting sprayed. So I, I said, Melka, you're spraying me. She, she's like, she, I think she's 70... I'd be 79. Melka, you're, you're spraying me again. It's just water coming over. What's going on? And so she's, Pastor, 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 can you pray with me? And she's, she's weeping. And then I'm thinking, oh, I've done it again. <sighs> Lord, I got, you know, I shouldn't have got angry. So I go outside the gate and she's just crying and there's, you know, she's had her brother-in-law that lived with them died. And now another relative died, and she fell down the stairs, and 
she doesn't want to come outside of her house, and now her other leg is injured, and she was going to move to Palm Springs, but now, you know, and it goes on and on. And she's, can, can, can you just pray with me? And I've shared the gospel with her before, but not in a, I want you to sit down, Melka, and I'm going to share the four points of the gospel with you right now. Listen to me. I haven't done it that way, but just throughout the years. And I got to share, again, the gospel with her. Not, not everything, but parts and pieces of the gospel. And she understands that you're saved by, by faith and grace, but she comes from a Filipino Roman Catholic background. And so I'm just praying, Lord, open her eyes. And so I'm sure not to say, even if you fail, you know, even if you get mad about something, perhaps even God can use that as an opportunity to share the gospel. Seize opportunities to share the gospel. Even if maybe you didn't initially respond the right way. And then quickly, a third is, when you look at this text here, it says in verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Verse 14 says, for the love of Christ controls us. I suggest that the engine and the fuel for gospelizing and evangelizing is that God is awesome to you and the love of Jesus just floors you. The more that you understand and embrace the love that God has for you in Christ, and the more awesome God is to you, that the more that you will share the gospel. So it doesn't become this legalistic thing, but God is amazing. And Jesus loves me. I can't believe that. And so then you share that with others. Get reconciled with God, gospelize. And then as we conclude, let go of shame and guilt. Replace it with joy in Jesus. I told Lisa that at this point in the sermon I would sing. And she said, Tom, whatever you do, please don't do that. Do not sing. So I thought about singing, let it go. But I think I can communicate the the thrust of this without singing. But I can say the words, let it go. And I think that that is what, as believers, we must do with our shame and guilt. Let it go. Let it go. And what I mean is, sometimes we can use our shame and guilt as self-atonement. Confess your sin, and First John 1 John 1.9 says that if you confess your sin then he'll be a faithful and just to forgive you. So you confess your sin, God forgives you, but not only that, your shame and your guilt, that's forgiven, but on your record that God sees and how he treats you and how he relates to you, yes, he he might have to bring some things into our life to help us to get out of some sinful habits, but how he relates to you is through that perfect obedience of Christ. And we can't allow our shame and guilt to paralyze us. Satan and remaining sin would take your guilt and say, don't pray. You're a sinner. You're a hypocritical worm. Don't pray. Don't read the Bible. Don't fellowship. Don't go to church. 
Don't open your mouth to sing praises to me. Don't read that good Christian book. Don't talk to that friend. That's what Satan and remaining sin will do. What if you do? Don't go to that women's meeting. Whatever you do, you sin this week. You had an argument with your husband. Men, don't go to the men's meeting. Don't go to the prayer meeting. You're a shameful, disgusting Christian. That's what Satan and remaining sin would do. We need to let that go in this way. You know, I'm not saying you talk to Satan, but, you know, actually, that, that in one sense, that is correct. <laughs> I am shameful. I, I am disgusting. Paul said, not only that, I'm the chief of all sinners. It's true. However, at that moment, grab that, turn that around, utilize that temptation and say, but a great exchange has happened. He who knew no sin became sin on my behalf and gave me the very righteousness of God so that not only am I cleansed, not only am I forgiven, but on my account is that very obedience of Christ. And that's how God looks at me with 100% righteousness by his declaration. Hallelujah. I'm going to go to church. I confess what I did was wrong. I'm going to church, and I'm going to praise God louder now than I did before. I'm going to worship and witness and read my Bible and pray, not out of guilt, but out of joy, that though I'm dirty, not only was I cleansed, but I've been declared justified and righteous with that obedience of, of Christ. We must not use legalism or mysticism or asceticism that you see in Colossians chapter 2 to smite ourselves to get us right with God. Confess your sin and then embrace the righteousness of Christ that God has declared is yours. Let shame and guilt go, replace it with joy. If any person deserves to live in shame and guilt, it would have been King David committed adultery, lied about it, and didn't just have Bathsheba's wife murdered, I'm sorry, Bathsheba's husband murdered, but even his friends, even Uzziah's friends, Uriah's friends that were with him, many of them were murdered. And that's why I think in Psalm 51, David says, Lord, don't take away from me the joy of my salvation. But when you read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 and other Psalms, his ultimate response by that is that he decided not to live in guilt and shame. And even verses are quoted in Romans chapter 4 where he talks about that he has his sins been covered and he's been made righteous. This is how we live. We let go of the shame and the guilt and embrace Christ. This is the great Exchange. So I would say, point uh, men and women, point your spouse, your kids, your friends, your enemies, and yourself to this exchange of the cross because it's crazy, but crazy good. In these crazy times, only God knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Who knows? You know, right? I think uh, Trump is going to be arrested this next week. Maybe. Maybe I'll be arrested. I hope not. Maybe I'm going to go to the moon. (laughs) My friend is, apparently. Crazy things. But the most crazy thing is that 
the king of kings would take your sin upon himself and give you his righteousness. So where do we anchor our souls? Where do you anchor your soul? Your job? No. Your marriage? No. Your family? No. Your kids? No. Where do you anchor your soul? And your pet? No. And politics? No. And technology? No. And health? No. There's one place to anchor your soul. And the cross. And Jesus Christ. And this crazy, amazing, wild exchange that God has provided for us. Lord, I pray you would bless your word and bless these people. And may we all anchor our soul into this great exchange of the cross. Lord, we thank you. And thank you, such small words, that you would take our sin and give us your righteousness, Lord. That is amazing. That is wild. That is unbelievably gracious to us, Lord. We praise you and we thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.